Please turn in your Bibles or in your bulletins, either one, to John chapter 17. I'll be looking at a lot of other verses, but I'm just going to be reading verses 13 through 19 right now. Hear the word of God. Jesus prayed, but now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world, and for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that as we dig into it, that you would enable us to continue to worship and to offer up our lives to you as a living sacrifice. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I'd actually originally planned on continuing on in the book of Revelation and landing perfectly in chapter 12 on Christmas Day, because that is a fabulous uh, passage on the Incarnation. But my trip up to Canada kind of messed up the schedule, and uh, rather than breaking up Revelation 11, I thought I will give a, an Advent series. It's been a number of years since I have done that. And so let me give you kind of uh, the projection for the next... Uh, four weeks, uh, kind of a road map. Uh, today I want to speak about putting God the Father back into Christmas, specifically His plan and His mission. Next week I want to speak about putting Christ back into Christmas, and specifically uh, the purpose of His incarnation. And then the third week, putting the Holy Spirit back into uh, Christmas and looking at some of the things that the Holy Spirit produced in his people on that first Advent uh, season. And I'm tentatively uh, thinking of speaking on the gifts of the Magi at, uh, I think that's how you pronounce it, right? Uh, on the uh, Christmas day itself. Now when theologians think of the division of work between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a lot of times they speak of the Father's decrees the Son's fulfilling of those decrees in His work, and then the Holy Spirit applying those decrees. Obviously, that's simplistic. There's a lot more that goes into it than, than that. But um, today we're focusing on the Father having a plan, having a purpose, having a mission statement, so to speak. Christ was sent into the world by the Father with a purpose, and there are a lot of verses in this chapter that speak about that, uh, but it's hinted at in verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. A few years ago I shared uh, uh, this uh, illustration, but I think it's a, a pretty interesting one. Uh, about a century ago, they discovered a ship that was drifting in the Arctic, and all of the crew were frozen in place as if they were on duty. And uh, when they climbed onto the ship, uh, they found that the captain was frozen while writing in his log, just standing there. And they read the entry, 
he had been there for 13 years. He had died apparently 13 years ago. And so here is this ship that's just been aimlessly drifting in that region. The people who discovered it described it as a drifting sepulcher manned by a frozen crew. Very, very strange sight. I think that is a little bit how God views the church when the church lacks the power of the Holy Spirit, which we're going to be looking at three weeks from now, when they, their, their foundation and their life is not the Lord Jesus Christ and his life, uh, which we'll look at next week, and when the Father's mission is not their mission. Sometimes people joke about Reformed people being the frozen chosen. And uh, we shouldn't be that way, and I think most uh, churches probably are not uh, that way, but there is always that temptation to be at the stations of duty, like those frozen crew on that ship, but lacking the outgoing streams of the Holy Spirit, Uh, having a reputation of being alive, but Christ not really empowering us in the things that we do. Uh, The ship being well-stocked with supplies, being kept afloat, but lacking direction, just aimlessly wandering, lacking purpose and meaning. So um, we're going to look at the Father's purpose today. And verse 18 says, As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And the Greek is actually stronger. The Greek is, just as you sent me into the world, I also have sent uh, them into the world. Uh, In John 20, Christ says the same thing. As the Father has sent me, I am also sending you. So what I want to do this morning is I want to compare this mission, this purpose that God the Father gave to Christ to the mission and the purpose that we have as we are sent into the world. There's three points you'll see in your outline. There's one of those rare times that I actually have a proper homiletical uh, outline for the sermon. The Father's mission, sent with a purpose, the opposition to the Father's mission, the world, and the Father's resources for the mission, just as you have sent me, I have sent them. Now, if we've been sent just as Christ was sent, then my first question is, for what purpose have we been sent? And what purpose have I as an individual been sent? Do I too have a mission? In uh, verse 4 of this chapter, Jesus said, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Now, if you don't have a strong sense of God's call upon your life, you're not going to even know if you have finished the work God has given you on a daily basis, let alone at the end of your life. But verse 4 shows that Jesus knew his mission clearly, so clearly that he could say, yes, I've finished everything that the Father gave me to do while he was here on earth. And since Jesus sends us in exactly the same way that the Father sent him, Jesus wants us to have a sense of purpose and mission as well. And for each of us, that might look a little bit different. Now, it's very popular in the uh, books on time management and things like that to teach people how to make a mission statement for what they want to be or what they want to do. Uh, But for Christians, it really should not be that way. Uh, A Christian statement should be seeking to find out what the Father 
wants me to do and what the Father wants me to be. We're not inventing our mission. We are discovering our mission. In fact, throughout our lives, we'll probably need to be fine-tuning our mission statements to more and more reflect what it is that God wants us to do. Now, obviously, all of us are sinners, so at the end of our lives, not a one of us is going to be able to say uh, what Jesus said in verse 4, that we have completely finished the work that the Father has given us uh, to do, but that should be something we long for, to long to more and more approximate. I want to read for you my mission statement that was last edited 16 years ago and still stands as the driving vision in my life. And the only part that has changed is uh, a tiny part that seems to assume that my kids are still living at home. I probably ought to update just that little uh, section. But other than a couple of phrases, this is still my mission that I am constantly pressing towards. And the reason I'm re reading this for you is it might give you a little bit of an idea of what I mean by a mission statement that you could be writing uh, for yourselves. My mission statement, unique to me, says... I want to live out my callings as husband, father, pastor, writer, teacher, and reformer with a constant dependence upon God's authority, presence, and power, and with an eye to pleasing Him rather than man. I want every facet of my ministry to be characterized by the overflow of the Spirit's power. I want to know Jesus and the power of His resurrection in all that I am and do. I want to model what it means to love and lead my family in the Lord. I want to enable my whole family to feel that they share in my ministry and to find satisfaction in the sacrifices that they make. I want to prepare my children to find God's purpose for their own lives. I want my wife and I to provide an inheritance of spiritual values, skills, and resources that will enable them to stand on our shoulders and go beyond what we will be able to achieve in our lifetimes. I desire to pass on a heritage to my children's children. I also dedicate myself to extending the kingdom of God through the local church in outreach, discipleship, teaching, writing, and equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Beyond the work of the local church, God has also given me a burning passion to pray and work towards seeing the whole bride of Jesus Christ strengthened, united, and better resourced for the culture-transforming work of discipling the nations, Matthew 28. When God brings such revival upon the world that nations as nations are discipled, I want to be used by God to help in the process of teaching them to observe God's biblical blueprints. Now that's unique to me. It's not something that would necessarily uh, factor into your mission statement, but I think it captures... Uh, the way in which God has sent me into the world. And I would urge you to think about what mission statement God has for you as he sends you into the world. From the time that you were conceived and you were born up genetically and in every way, God was forming you for a purpose, and it was not a selfish purpose. It was a purpose designed uh, to glorify God. Now, if you're a homeschooled child, your schedule's going to look totally different from mine. And if you're a stay-at-home mom, it's going to look different. But there's going to be some overlap of passions. And I want to look at this chapter to see some of the passions that drove Christ and I think really should drive uh, every one of us. I think it'll help, to, uh, help you to craft your own mission statement for yourself. Take a look at verse 1. 
We did not read this earlier, but uh, look at verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. Christ had a passion to glorify the Father in absolutely everything that he did. And as we approach the beginning of the year, I think it's worthwhile fine-tuning mission statements to see if they need to be tweaked, to see if the way in which these mission statements highlight or glorify our calling, which is an appropriate thing, does so in a way that glorifies the Father. Here's how Jesus worded it in Matthew 5.16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So he's not denying that you have glory, that you have light, but he is saying that you need to shine forth your light in a way that shows that it is reflecting God's light. You're like the moon reflecting the light of the sun. Your light is derived from God, and the way in which you do your good works does not focus upon you but uh, focuses on glorifying the Lord. So he says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So that's at least one way in which our mission could parallel Christ's. Look at verse 2. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Obviously, we don't have authority over all flesh like Jesus did, but each one of us does have delegated authority in the same way that Jesus did over something. Does your exercise of the authority that God has given you over your bodies and over your resources, over your family, etc., does your exercise of authority always recognize the fact that it flows from the Father through Jesus and uh, sometimes through human authority. Christ had authority because he was under authority. And secondly, is our exercise of authority for the purpose of giving life and benefiting others, or is it a selfish exercise of authority? I think it's a good question to ask uh, when we consider mission. We have a stewardship trust of people and things, and we are accountable to the Father for exercising it to his glory and for the best interests of those that he has put in our path. Look at verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Uh, throughout this prayer, one of the repeating themes that you see is that Jesus wanted people to know the Father. He reveled in knowing the Father and the Father knowing him, but he wanted others to know the Father. Intimacy with God does not just happen. It has to be planned for. It has to be worked at. And Jesus had a plan that dovetailed with the Father's plan to help others to know that same intimacy. So does your mission statement include a passion for knowing God? And has that purpose made it into your schedule? The Apostle Paul said that this was his life goal, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. Philippians 3, verse 10. Okay, look at, uh, at verse 4. Now, I already read this once. I think it bears reading again. 
I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Now, when we think of the work of Christ, a lot of times we think of the work of the last three and a half years of his life. But I think there's a whole lot more that's comprehended in that. Uh, his work that God sent him to do included, according to Luke chapter 2, verse 40, handling the issues of his babyhood, his toddlerhood, his childhood, with grace, it says, and with wisdom. Jesus is a model to children on how to glorify God. Luke 2, verse 51 indicates that Jesus pleased the Father in the way in which he submitted to his human parents, and uh, he did that as a teenager. So are you teenagers imitating Christ in how you, as Rodney earlier said, as uh, how you redeem the time? Even if you have not yet been solidified in your sense of mission for life, you can certainly have a mission for how you uh, interact with your parents, you interact with others as a teenager. Learning carpentry and doing it to God's glory was a part of Jesus' work for most of his first 30 years of life. So I, I think we have a, this tendency to be pietistic, think ministry is when you stand up here in the pulpit or when you witness or do something like that. No, all of life was sanctified by Christ, including his carpentry. There is no such thing as a secular calling. If we're imitating Christ, we're even doing carpentry to the glory of the Father. Caring for his mother in her old age was a part of the work that the father gave to him. It was a part of why he was sent into the world, to model to us how to be a child, how to be a teenager, how to be a young adult, how, how to uh, take care of a family. He was the sole provider for his family, uh, at least for part of his life. How to take care of aging parents. That's what he did at the cross and actually, he had been doing it earlier, and he said, okay, I'm dying now. I want to make sure that my parents are taken care of. He's a model for us in absolutely everything that he did, not just in the preaching and the evangelism. So in order to have a, a mission realized God, you don't have to be stick. It gets absolutely everything that you do with mission. Now, none of us will be able to say that we have perfectly finished the work which God has given us to do, but that should be our longing. Uh, it was certainly Paul's longing. Okay, take a look at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. That's an amazing statement. You are a gift that the Father gave us. It really is amazing when you start thinking about it, that you're worthwhile to give as a gift to Jesus? Yes. That's, uh, that's what he is exactly saying. Now, not only speak for the Father's property and Jesus' property, but you are precious to the Father. Every one of you are. Ryle says, it is an unspeakable member that's of the Father, and we care for them. We express our love to him. We want to be them. But there's a sense in which the Father given people to Jesus. For an elder or a deacon, it involves a lot of people. Uh, for a parent, it might involve a spouse and children. For the children, it might involve the parents. So here is a question you need to ask yourself. Am I relating to these as and to them selfish? Is it a precious bother to how you handle these gifts? 
I thought that Joel McDermott did a marvelous job of summarizing how biblical welfare is familial in the chapter we looked at this past Tuesday. When a child is born, it is... But as parents age, they are often dependent upon the care of their children. Even if they've saved up a boatload of money, they're still very dependent. God has given to uh, us to each other, and beyond what I've just described, statement speaks about the tone, that all things which you have given me are from you. Now this speaks of stewardship of knowledge and passing on that knowledge to other people. How are you about receiving knowledge from the Father and passing on that knowledge. People think, well, that's the responsibility of the, of the Father. But, you know, Jesus modeled as a teenager being in the Word of God that a lot of the uh, of the day were learning Jesus when he was 13 years old. They need to have the humility to learn from our children because of our children. Maybe something to learn from the Father. We, how do I gain? They have given to you, have given me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from the word of this of this chapter. It would take way too long. Uh, I've gone through enough, though, I think, that how to go through this chapter and, and think through it, how to apply for your own mission statement, uh, doing things as Jesus did in his uh, sense of mission. I think if you prayerfully do a moment of his life in turn, invent his own mission. He received his mission from the Father, and he fully lived it out. Now, if Jesus uh, did not his mission, neither should we. In verse 9, uh, the Father's mission involves passionate prayer. In verse 10, it involves 11. It involves a passionate uh, desire for holiness. In verse 12, it is looking to the welfare of others and being grieved when they are part of a stewardship. In verse 3, joy that flows from Father to Son by the Holy Spirit into our lives. If you continue to read verse by verse through this chapter, which I'm not going to do, you're going to see that from the time that Jesus was in the womb to the praying of this prayer, Everything had purpose and meaning, even the baby and the carpentry. So how do we put the Father back into Christmas and really back into by living out a mission statement that's the Father's heart for us? But verse 18 implies opposition in the word world, okay? Now that opposition is made crystal clear in a lot of other scriptures. I'm just going to read you two. Uh, verses 14 through 15 say, I have given them your word, and the world has hate. I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep the position Christ received incredible from Satan and the world from the moment that he conceived. To kill Christ wants us to know up front, will receive, warns us not to try to whisk the world. What's he saying? He's saying that our goal is self-preservation. Our goal is a living out of the, of the fall. We need to be, you know, talk about things like that, about that. But when you're about that, it's not about self-preservation, about mission-preservation. We are here to conquer through 16 verse. Jesus said in the year of the world. And how to discern God's calling hundreds and hundreds, successes, failures, the beautiful things, the painful things, the things that have a lasting. Those things very, very cruel to me. Others were people who had, and based on Rod, this pastor had me process why God's things in my life. God had me process. What was God doing? Not gone through those pain me into the kind of leader that I am. And so it helped thankful for those things, them of things that God's things I draw. I don't know a little paper up here. My life over here. Arrow piercing to the dark part are the dark uh, in this world. I'm piercing the world for a purpose, and I can see crystal clearly the world God wants to influence. 
Now this chart mission calling, in fact things that me weep in the nights, please change these things, help me to have some kind of an imp on these kinds of quite different than what really have profound. I'm sending you into the an impact upon the column also backlash because you can't pierce the world without getting backlash. They don't like it, right? And so some people back away when they get backlash, they get hatred, they get uh, uh, people saying nasty things uh, about them. They back away from their calling. And I say, no, why would I get discouraged by the resistance that's in the world? Actually, the resistance that's over there energizes me. It's why I've been put on earth. It makes me burdened. It's the thing that drives me in life. It's why I want to still stay alive and not go to heaven right away. It's I see these things still need to be changed. So they don't make me get discouraged. They are a part of what God made me for. And, um, and I believe that God has a unique and important calling for each one of you, just like he had a unique and important calling for me. So the father's role in the Christmas story reminds me that just as the father sent the son into the world of opposition that desperately needs changing, he has sent me into a world that hates him and that desperately needs changing. Now your call may be quite different. In fact, right now your calling may be simply to change your toddlers. That's the thing that's pulling your hair out, making you pound the table, weep, say, Lord, Help me to have an influence in my kids' lives of your grace. Help me to fulfill my calling to raise these children uh, in the honor and the fear <clears throat> and the nurture of the Lord. Or maybe to influence your neighbors or to leverage your work for the kingdom. It is guaranteed that all of us, as we seek to fulfill our callings, are going to have the world, the flesh, and the devil resisting us. It's just guaranteed. Just as Christ was resisted and hated, you are going to be resisted and hated if you truly are following your calling. You're going to get backlash. And so if we look to what Christ has provided next week and what the Holy Spirit empowers week three, we will face those things with faith and hope and not with despair. So we've seen we've got a mission. Jesus had a mission. We have opposition just like Jesus had opposition. But let's look lastly at the fact that just as Jesus was given adequate resources by the Father for his mission, he has given us adequate resources to fulfill our mission as well. A nurse in London complained to Bishop Tyler Smith that uh, she had been treated very rudely by some of her patients. And uh, the bishop said, well, thank God for that. And she was kind of taken aback because she was expecting sympathy. And she says, what do you mean? And he said, why, if you're carrying a vessel and somebody knocks up against you, you can only spill out of the vessel what is inside. And when people misjudge and persecute us, we can only spill out what is inside. And his point was that the true test of our character comes out under stress. Okay? Do we get bitter? Do we get angry? What do people see in you when you face tribulations trials, persecutions, or even inconveniences, you know, that the slow driver that's in front of you. What do they see spilling out of you? What spills out of us is either the flesh, which all of us have to contend with, don't we? Either the flesh or the supernatural resources of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now let's take a look at some of the resources that Christ speaks of. The first one is joy. Christ wants us to have such 
fullness of joy that it spills out of us even with the least jostle. Verse 13 says, but now I come to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. What did Christ's joy do for him? Well, Hebrews tells us that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Somehow, God's joy enabled Christ to endure the unendurable. It's a resource. It helps us. Nehemiah 8 verse 10 says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now Christ was concerned that his disciples were getting discouraged and that they would wear thin, they would lose their joy in their ministry. And um, so he said in John chapter 15 verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. In John 16 24 he said, Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. And there's nothing worse than losing your joy of service. It's just like grinning and bearing it, you know? Now, it's better that you go ahead and do your duties and continue on with life and make some progress without that joy. God wants us to be filled with joy as we go into the world. Anytime we are out of fellowship with God, this tends to dry up. And... Um, we lose our ability to effectively minister in the world. David cried out, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. After the Bathsheba affair, he realized that momentary happiness was not worth the loss, the incredible loss of spiritual joy. And this joy can be sustained even in the worst of times. In 1 Peter 1, he describes the incredible persecution that those Christians have been going through, unbelievable suffering, and yet he says... Yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So joy was a resource that enabled them to face their persecution successfully. And by the way, don't blame your lack of joy on your circumstances or on other people. Um, Satan, the world, your children, nobody can rob your joy from you unless you let them rob that joy from you. Now in my life, I keep vacillating between my mission, and the Father's mission in my life, right? That's when I start getting really upset is when my mission is uh, being uh, frustrated. And I have to remind myself, you know what? This is not about me. It's about the Father, and I have to continue on with my mission despite the opposition that may be there. On the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Christ said, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Christ has sent us into the world, but he has strengthened us with his supernatural joy. It is there for the asking. It is there to be received by faith. A second resource that Christ was given was glory, and he gives that to us as well. Take a look at verse 22. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. Now, he's not talking about the glory of the splendor uh, that he's going to have at the second coming, but he's talking about the glory of God's power working through him. He says, give them the same glory <clears throat> that I have had. James connects that supernatural joy that I just read about with glory. He says, you rejoice with joy inexpressible 
and full of glory. So let me give you a summary statement of what this glory means from Jameson Fawcett Brown's commentary. <clears throat> they say, the glory then here meant is that all which Jesus received from the Father, the glory of a perfect acceptance, the glory of free access to the Father and right to be heard always, the glory of the Spirit's indwelling and sanctification, the glory of divine support and victory over sin, death, and hell, the glory of finally inheriting all things. This glory, Jesus says, not I will give, but I have given them, thus teaching us that this glory is the present heritage of all that believe. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now we might excuse our failure to follow through on our mission that the Lord has given to us uh, by saying, you know, if the Lord gave me more joy and if He gave me more courage and if He gave me more of this and the other thing, then yes, I would take that on. But God does not give graces to those who are unwilling uh, to step out in faith and serve Him. It's as we step out to do the impossible, His grace takes over uh, in our lives. This, I like the illustration of that man who um, Jesus said, stretch forth your hand. He had a withered hand. He could have said, well, Lord, I'll stretch it forth after you heal it. Jesus said, no, stretch it forth. He wanted him to will to do the impossible. And it was as he did that by faith that God's healing took over. And really, that's a principle. It's a, it's a picture for how all of life functions. The third resource that the Father gave Christ was his word. Verse 14 says, I have given them your word. Verse 8 says, for I have given them the words which you have given me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. See, it's only the word of God that has power to bring people to faith. Only God's word is an infallible guide. Only God's word can bring sanctification. Verse 17 says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And we absolutely need to take the word of God as a resource in everything that we do, raising of our children, going out into politics, whatever it may be. See, our testimonies are nice as a supplement, as an expression of how the word has impacted us, but your testimonies will not save people. Only the word of God does. Uh, your experiences will not save people. Only the word of God does. Uh, so it's a resource that we must not neglect. Uh, there are other resources, uh, such as personal knowledge of the Father, uh, privilege of prayer, power of God's name, the authority of being commissioned by, by God. That's a resource. Fantastic. A lot of fantastic resources in this chapter. I'm not even going to cover. I'm just going to give you one more uh, as an encouragement, and uh, that's experiencing God's love. Let's start at verse 26. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Now this is an incredible thought. When God sends us into the world to face trials and tribulations, it is not because he doesn't care for us. He sets the same love upon us that he set upon his only begotten son whom he sent into the world. Now, you might think, if God really loved me, why would he make me go through all of the things I've had to go through? Why would he have people resisting my leadership? 
Why would God allow me to suffer pain and suffer loss? Really, they're ridiculous. When you think about it, they're ridiculous statements because Jesus faced pain, and yet the Father loved him. Jesus faced incredible loss, and yet the Father loved him. People resisted his leadership, and yet the Father loved him. I think questions like that are either an indication that we don't have a mission statement from the Father, or we're slipping over into inventing our own uh, mission statement. It's self-focused. It's skewed. And an understanding, I think, of each of these resources can motivate us to get on track, back on track with our mission. Verse 24 says about Jesus, you loved me before the foundation of the world. So does the Father love us that much? Do we have a love from the Father that never had a beginning and never will have an end? And the scripture says, absolutely, yes. Jeremiah 31 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Now, the reason I say that this is a, a resource is that it gives you the motivation to keep on keeping on when the going gets tough. <clears throat> when you face the kinds of trials that Christ faced in the world, I think it's important to realize that His love is not conditioned upon how good you are, how much you've accomplished, how smart you are. It's not conditioned upon any of those things. In fact, if it was... Uh, we'd all be discouraged. We'd all be miserable. Uh, we couldn't even be loved when you consider our sin. You know, in Psalm 5, verse 5, God says uh, that He hates all workers of iniquity. The only reason He could love us is because He sees Christ in us. In fact, um, uh, once you take a look at verse 26 and see how it's worded there. It says, I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and notice this, and I in them. See, if Christ is in us, the Father can love us with the same love. Now, take a look at verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Isn't that incredible? Being sent into the world was not pleasant for Jesus. He faced persecution and rejection and humiliation and even death. But God upheld him with his love, and he promises to do the same thing with us. I want you to turn as we end uh, to Romans chapter 8 to see the description of the world that Christ was sent into. It's the same world that we are sent into. And I'm going to begin reading at verses 35 and following. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. So that's the kind of world that Christ came into. It's the kind of world that we go into. Uh, but verse 37 continues, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For... Here comes the basis for being able to conquer. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from, and notice this, the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love resides in the Son, and we can be loved with the same love when we're in the Son, and the Son is in us. 
So that's what enables us to take on our mission successfully. God loves us dearly. And verse 32 says that the Father having given us the Son, how will he not also with him give, him freely, give us freely all things? So next time you have doubts about whether you can really do what God is calling you to do, remind yourself that you are loved as dearly as the Son is loved, and the Father is not going to hold out on you. He will give you the resources that you need to fulfill your mission. <clears throat> Christmas story should remind us that God never sends us into the world without a mission and without all of the resources to accomplish that mission. And the question is, will you implement the Father's mission or will you implement your own? That's the only question. Christ is sending you to do something. Will you do it to his glory? Perhaps you might think, if I had more joy, if I had more understanding, and God says, no, no, no. I've already given you everything that you need. You need to, by faith, step out of the boat, step onto the water, and begin to do the things that I've called you to do. So may you enter this Christmas uh, season able to celebrate the fact that you really do have the same resources uh, that uh, Jesus had as he uh, came into the world, and um, by faith rejoice in that fact. Uh, you have a mission from the Father that is unique to you. It's not mine. You won't be able to copy this thing. I don't even need to show it to you. You don't need to copy it. You've got your own mission, so be sure to fulfill it by his grace. Amen. Father, we thank you for this season that we can reflect on some of the things that happened uh, during uh, the incarnation as uh, you sent Christ into the world. And I pray that you would help us to be strengthened and sanctified, to grow in our ability to be missional, to have vision, to have a purpose uh, for uh, our lives, for everything that we do. Do bless this, your people. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.